0: Hello from Austin Hall on the campus of (laughs) Harvard Law School. We're in Cambridge, Steve. What are we doing here? You're very proud of that joke. I am proud of that joke. Uh, That was very spontaneous. Welcome to episode 139 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you, as always, by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas, but this week also by the Harvard National Security and Law Association. Yay. Thanks. Thanks, y'all. Yes. That's like, that's like Bob Euchre
1: in Major League when they're pretending to be the crowd. So, hey! hey yay. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: th- special thanks to Matt Morris and Hillary Heard for uh, bringing this out here. It's Thursday, October 17th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It's Eastern Time. This is throwing me off. I've, I was on Mountain Time yesterday. I keep my Google Calendar on Central Time. We're in Eastern time today. Yeah, that is an issue. I have no idea what time you it know, is. You know, given the pace of events recently, we should specify we are recording <laughs> at 4.40, basically, Eastern time on this day. Who knows what's going to have happened in the meantime? I mean, has, has there been an impeachment yet? Uh, well, there hasn't been a formal vote for an inquiry, Steve. Oh,
1: right. So there can't be, right? right? That, 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 that thing out of nowhere. Yes, true. All right. although, although, apparently, Senator McConnell said today that you know he hopes to be done with the trial by Christmas. I'm like...
0: Trial? It, we're skipping, now we're just skipping all the steps. Well, I thought, I thought Senator Graham was circulating uh, uh, pre ridden commitments that people would vote. I guess that would speed us along to get the trial done by Christmas. It if is true. If, if pre-voted it, If on the it. jury votes in advance, you know, that's, right. that's awkward. Well, needless to say, we will have some Trump-landia to discuss. <laughs> More than a few topics under that general heading. I think first we'll talk about Syria-related topics. Since true. about the moment we finished last week's podcast— a remarkable number of really Horrible jaw-dropping things, things started happening. Yeah. Yes, um, I think we'll focus a little bit on the, the detention issue that bloomed for a moment and then wilted, but hasn't entirely gone away. Um, and no doubt, we'll comment more generally. But the legal issues really surround the detention aspects. Um, and then after Syria, we'll talk about Trumplandia issues. I think we've got some, we've got some Giuliani stuff, more than a few things. Do we have to talk about him? We must. We have some. Uh, we have some refusal to testify type stuff to discuss. We because have of attorney-client privilege, which is in the Constitution. Well, we will talk about the nature of that. Maybe we can do some compare and contrast with state secrets privilege. Um, there was a trio of decisions, big decisions last week. You got some... Trio? Among- there were five
1: <laughs> it's hard to keep track. No, no, Friday was insane. Friday was like, okay, a major ruling against Trump. And it's like, which
0: one of Would the five are you? Please be specific. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it was, Twitter didn't work well on that. Um, in, in that context, I want to talk about your very interesting op-ed, um, Shades or Specter of Andrew Jackson, uh, I see lurking there. And then we'll turn our attention to, uh, to the Department of Homeland Security. Department of Homeland Security has some succession stuff going on. We will revisit one of our friends or uh, sustaining members on the show, which is the general topic of appointments, nominations, confirmations, and succession issues. Which
1: now merges with one of our friends because one of our friends is actually now the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland exactly. Security. Exactly. It's
0: incredible. Chris Krebs is- Although he
1: may not be by the time the show is over.
0: I, I, yeah. Well, we'll see about that. And uh, while we're on the subject of Chris, we'll talk about his organization, the cybersecurity and infrastructure security- Good segue. Uh, yes. CISA. We will talk about CISA's proposed new subpoena authority, which would be an adjustment to the uh, and an exception, a new exception to the Electronic Communications Privacy Act of 1986. And I think it's a great idea, but it's got its critics. We'll kind of review that. You know, when we get to frivolity, yeah, uh, we are in the Greater Boston metropolitan area. So that's what I hear. How about some Boston-themed frivolity? You like that, huh? I would like that. Um, Go park your car. Yeah, we have some. Uh, you're gonna say the, the classic. Uh, where are you gonna Where are you gonna park that car, well, Steve? We, we're in Havidiad, right? I so do. <laughs> we're doing Nia.
1: Nia. Wicked. Okay. Now uh, I have to say this is you know this is this is home turf for you. This is very
0: um, yeah. This is enemy territory. Friends, for, for me. this is homecoming for me. Thanks for bringing me back. I was telling Matt <laughs> before we started. Uh, the Last time I was in this room, I was taking federal income tax, and that was. Uh, well, I hope this will be a more successful experience.
1: So the, not the, not the, the last time I was here wasn't that exciting, but two times ago, I was here with the Yale Law Journal flag football team. Mm. Um, How'd that work out for it you? Was, it was a moral victory. <laughs> Harvard!
0: Harvard! Harvard!
1: So my, my, wife's, my wife's whole family is from Boston, um, which is part of why the, this all actually ended up happening, because they're all here. Um, and the first time I met her grandfather... Um, he says to me, where do you go to law school? And I said, Yale. He said, what, you couldn't get into Harvard? <laughs> I like him already. And so my response to that is, you know, hey, Papa, here I am. I'm at Harvard Law. I
0: notice he did, you know, is is he, are any families in-laws coming or are they shunning you? They're they're not coming to the podcast. They're not coming to the podcast show. All right. right, um, well, we'll carry on without them with our Boston-themed frivolity. I, I just want to say, by the way, that was supposed to be
1: a joke. I like how the Harvard Law students don't laugh at the whole, like, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, like our friends here, I thought that was all serious and... <laughs> Yes, the, perfectly reasonable. <laughs> which is exactly what a Harvard law student or alum would think. True. And this true. is why my weekend will only get better Saturday when I go to New Haven. What are you going down there for? Uh, my 15th law school reunion. Oh, nice. That's old. What kind of activities do they have lined up for you? Eating, drinking, <laughs> being merry. Okay. There, there that are, that are exactly panels and there really are talks fun. and stuff, but like, that's not I, what you're. That's in. my job. Like, I don't want to do my job. I wanna. I wanna.
0: I hear that. You know, stock up on some some Yale gear. Well, I think it's very much in the spirit to, to be here, and I, we appreciate you joining us. We should just go to Stanford tomorrow, like do the, you know. Just get a rotation. Well, yeah, Stanford so listeners, uh, bring us on out. Uh, our Boston frivolity. Stop will- inviting us to all these campuses. <laughs> well, if we're going to be there anyways. Um, our Boston-themed frivolity will uh, touch on great Boston-themed movies, maybe TV shows, all-time great Boston I mean, Boston the TV show, is, is there any competition for Cheers? Well, now you took mine. You took mine before I even had this. Oh yeah, that was thing. a this hard was one. Gotta be a surprise. Gee,
1: TV shows <laughs> with big Boston themes. Well, have, hmm. how about we
0: talk about TV shows set in Boston that are terrible? Boston Legal. Oh, well, so just to jump into it right now, there's like a whole slew of Boston themed legal shows. I don't know why that keeps happening. It's a David E. Kelly thing, I guess. They're terrible. We can skip the TV shows now, and when we get to it, we can just do sports and movies. I'll just
1: say, the Boston legal episode where Alan Shore has to go argue before the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, that's one of my favorites of all time. I have not seen that. Maybe that'll rescue it. Uh, uh, May it please the court, right? They say, whenever you want to yell at them, just say, you know, with all due respect, may it please the court. And so his
0: whole argument is, with all due respect, may it please the court. Did that work? Bless your heart. Bless (laughs) Bless your heart. All right, but we actually have substantive stuff to talk about. All right, let's jump in with Syria. Um, Okay, so... This all unfolded after we recorded last week, so Largely, we, we haven't really dug into the uh, what I view as the betrayal of our uh, partners and coalition partners, the people who were doing the bulk of the on-the-ground fighting and dying against the Islamic State, uh, I think some 11,000 Kurds dead overall. I don't know how much that's combat versus otherwise. Um, but critically for purposes of national security legal topics. The, the SDF uh, forces were administering detention. And so one of the dirty little secrets of the past decade or so is that notwithstanding the way that it seems like military detention is some topic from just the first post9/11 decade, in fact, it's still there, it still matters, not just at Guantanamo, but at other locations where we don't directly administer the detention and we rely on uh, local forces. In this case, uh, the local proxy forces, the SDF. Um, the number of individuals at issue here is is astonishing and large, and I think a larger number than I think the president is certainly aware, because he only seems to be aware that of there two. Are, well, he seems to be aware of the European foreign fighters, yes. which is a not small group themselves, but it's not the largest group. So think of it as concentric circles. The innermost circle, the two uh, two remaining uh, so-called beetles. These are formerly British citizens uh, who were stripped by the U.K. of their citizenship. But Think they, Pete Best, not Ringo Starr. They, well, you know, and it bugs me because, like, the media will use specific actual Beatles names. They'll I, say, like, well, that's Jihadi Paul, Jihadi Ringo. It's bad enough they're using the Beatles for this purpose. Alexander Coti, I don't know if it's pronounced right there, but, and also El Shafi El Sheikh. Um, they both were in SDF custody. This is not news. They've been in custody for a long time. These are people um, suspected of in... in Probably soon to be uh, formally accused of involvement in a, an array of horrific beheadings of Western hostages, um, some of the, some of the most horrific things we've associated with the Islamic State. These guys are thought to have been involved in it. Um, they've been in SDF custody. You can go back. I think it was episode eighty-three when looked this up. Eighty-three. You cheated. You summer. did homework. again, like last week. It's easy when it's in the show notes okay. to search for it. Uh, back in summer eighteen, we were talking about whether and to what extent the United States could get custody of these guys. Um, they have, at least if the allegations are true, they have a lot of blood in their hands, including American blood. And that's a, that's a very strong use case, if the evidence is available, in my opinion, for bringing them here for federal civilian court prosecution. Because we actually want to get a conviction, and we want it to stick, and we want it to happen sometime in what a are you reasonable saying about, period saying time. What are you saying about the military commissions? I'm saying exactly awesome. what I'm saying, um, that they're not working. Uh-huh. So, these two are now in our hands, they're in American custody. They're probably at American an American military facility in Iraq. That's uh, been reported, right? I think Spencer Ackerman reported that. Yeah, I know. I think that's all. That's not. I always I always to call him Spencer Ackerman because that's, a, that's his, uh, that's his Twitter, Twitter handle. Twitter handle. Yeah. Um, he's a fun follow on Twitter and uh, in general. So. Um, you follow him around, like in general. Exactly. Yeah, we'll that's, talk about surveillance. That's later. creepy. <laughs> I've really had not mind more reading his writings, but. <laughs> so that's the innermost circles. These two. Um, beyond that, we were told in, in the, uh, the heat of the moment of the precipitous decision, in my opinion, by our commander-in-chief to greenlight uh, the long-threaded, long-bluffed uh, Turkish invasion of the Kurdish-controlled regions, which in Syria. is now solved. We'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, A little fired up about this one. So uh, it was immediately said as people were beginning to blast the administration for putting at risk the detention of all these Islamic State uh, captives, because why say would, nothing over the tens of thousands
1: of Kurds, but, you know.
0: Right, right. Well, exactly. But on this issue, I know. there was a response on the issue I'm talking about. And the response from the administration was, all right, we've, we've already got the two Beatles and we're going to get, I think the original claim was about 40 total high-value detainees. And the implication was, hey, look, there, there's the ones that really matter to us. We're going to get them. Well, like so much else about the precipitous and emergency nature of the withdrawal that that was then thrust upon our military, um, witnessed the need to conduct airstrikes to destroy the armaments and facilities left behind from one of our encampments uh, that happened over the past, I think, 24 hours. Um, We weren't able to actually pull off the transfer of those uh, three dozen or so uh, apparently high-value detainees, so we don't have them. Now, that is itself a small group compared to the 1,000 uh, or so foreign fighters, which is a shorthand being used for the European citizen uh, Islamic State captives. But beyond that are some 10,000 local Syrian or Iraq uh, citizenship fighters, and there's no discussion whatsoever about what would happen to them if SDF is forced to or is unable to, is forced to con- cease its uh, protection Protection of those facilities, or uh, unable to continue to defend itself from the Turks. Right. Yes. So, so we end up with two people and no pre-planning that's executed for all the rest. And the president's been playing uh, catch-up on this. There's a, been a little bit of, well, let's blame the Europeans for not solving that problem before. Hey, fair to criticize them for not solving that problem before, but yeah. that's no answer now. Um, there's been a little bit of. Hey, you know, let's let's not worry about it because maybe maybe the Assad regime is going to swoop in, and as, as indeed may actually occur now. Because what have we done? We've driven our Kurdish allies uh, into a partnership with the Russians, the Syrians, and by extension the Iranians. But then there's the letter he wrote. Yeah, talk about the letter. Do I have to? Yes. Quote from it. <laughs> I really don't want to quote from this letter. Come on, tough guy.
1: I, I saw this letter. <laughs> I saw this letter on on Twitter yesterday. I, I you know I, I spent a good chunk of yesterday. Um, not online because I was arguing a case. And I got back online and I was like, this is a funny joke. I know. I totally thought it was like an I, onion thing. It, I mean, it was an onion thing, except it was signed by the President of the United States. Don't be a tough guy, he said. Right. I'll call you later. Call, you later. <laughs> call me. Um, yeah, and that really, so really, well. really is call me maybe, right? It's foreign policy qua Carly Rae Jepsen.
0: Call me maybe. That could be a show title to start. Yeah, we can do better. OK, pressure's on. Yeah. Um, so we're told today the reporting— We do, we do it all the time. The, the reporting from is that Erdogan read that, threw it in the trash can, as it were, and at that point— Laughed hysterically. —pulled the trigger on authorizing the invasion. No kidding. Um, yeah, that's unfortunate. Now, coming back to the Beatles. So they're in U.S. military custody. They're sort of in the posture of longtime sustaining member— John Doe. Doe. Yeah, Doe from, John, from Doe v. Mattis. Uh, and insofar as we actually have an interest in bringing them to the United States, there's that as well— Uh, So the clock is now ticking because the longer we keep them there, the more likely it is we start to get the early skirmishes of habeas litigation. And that would present the threshold question that John Doe did not present because he was a citizen. There would be a question of can they sustain habeas review if we end up just holding these guys in military detention. They're very likely right now in the same facility where John Doe once was. That's most likely. Um, What do you think? Do, Do the courts assert jurisdiction? to hear a habeas claim if they're held over there in some long-term custody.
1: Well, I think the first question is, who would bring that lawsuit, right? I mean, like, so in Doe's case, you, so had,
0: you had the ACLU as a next friend, right? Yeah, here, so we know, because it's happened in the UK, we know the mother of El Sheikh is willing to litigate on his All behalf right. and in his interest, so, so she, she could f- do that. So
1: she files a habeas petition on his behalf. Then we get into like the furthest, like pigeonhole, like the, the you know down the rabbit hole, the, the, the deepest rabbit hole in Guantanamo habeas land. <laughs> it's a deep rabbit hole. It is. A, it is. A, it is a deep rabbit hole. So Bumedian, of course, holds that the suspension clause protects non-citizen mm-hmm. enemy combatants detained in Guantanamo. Um, mm-hmm. The two Makala cases, right, hold that that's not true for. Um, non-citizen
0: enemy combatants detained at Bagram. Is it fair to say that the distinction that Judge Bates and others, I I can't remember who else was involved in that. Judge Henderson, I think, wrote the the, the panel opinions. Yeah, so is it fair to say that the distinction they they emphasized was that uh, the detention facility in Parwan, um, the Afghan base- Was in theater. Is in theater, and and that the theater's an active combat zone. Now, now, never mind that the three detainees at issue in the two Makala cases were not captured in theater and were not from Afghanistan. Fair criticism, but you can flip it around, and by the same token, say that never mind that some of the th- captives at Guantanamo uh, yeah. were captured in theater in a combat zone. This is
1: why this is why some would have argued that Boumedian should have applied to Makla or, or that it was wrongly decided in the first place. Well, so yeah.
0: and, and one could the, say the that, D.C.
1: Circuit is not allowed to have that view. Which has not stopped the D.C. Circuit. I was going to say, like,
0: <laughs> you tell that tell that
1: to the federal judges. To, tell that to um, five D.C. Circuit judges and one former D.C. Circuit judge who now has a slightly better job. Well, I will say, and you've heard me say
0: this on the show before. Yes, indeed. Um, the right way to think, I think, the combat zone context really does matter, and I think it's foolhardy. Aha, uh-huh, but a, it doesn't. I'm sorry, just upsetting, upsetting you. Yeah, up. you're you're <laughs> you're distracting me. Is what you're doing. The, the argument, which is a winner, is that if it's important, we don't have a disincentive to take people out of the combat zone if that's the safe and secure thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so if we think that someone's captured in a combat zone and there's ongoing hostilities, we should be able to do what we did in World War II, which is bring whatever number of otherwise lawfully held people to whatever location safest and most proper if it's Alabama. otherwise lawful. Well, they're all over the country, right? In Uh, World War II, there's facilities everywhere. Um, And so we've created a situation where, like, that's the last thing we want to do now. The law discourages taking people out of theater. Um, And, yes, some international law experts are going to be listening to that thinking, wait a minute, there's Geneva Convention rules about this now. True. But setting setting that aside, assume compatibility with whatever other legal frameworks might be relevant. It's, It's crazy to have a doctrinal framework that forces you to keep people in theater less safe, less secure. And so Makula was partially wrong. Bomedian's partially wrong by that rule. Um,
1: well, fortunately, I think none of them matter um, because um, of a subsequent D.C. circuit decision. Now go all the way down the rabbit hole. Um, in 2014, in the Amer case, A-A-M-E-R, where the D.C. circuit holds that the effect of Boumedian was to revert the habeas jurisdiction of the D.C. federal courts to the pre-detainee treatment act status quo, um, right, which is why in AMR, the court holds that as a matter of statutory interpretation, it could entertain a conditions of confinement claim from Guantanamo detainees, never mind the Military Commissions Act and jurisdiction stripping. That's the law of the circuit. Um, and the pre-DTA status quo was resolved. Right And under Rezul, the federal courts have statutory habeas jurisdiction, so long as there's jurisdiction over a custodian named in the petition. So you know, I actually think this hasn't been litigated yet, but I actually think Amer um, moots the constitutional question the DC Circuit decided in the, in the Makala cases by suggesting that we don't even have to get to the suspension clause issue, the statute allows for
0: jurisdiction. That's fascinating. I had not... If I, if you've told me that before, I've forgotten. It's but a rabbit hole. That is a rabbit hole, um, but it sounds like it looms kind of large yes. if and when they start litigating yes. because, just to underscore the point, everyone might assume that there would be habeas jurisdiction because Doe v. Mattis turned out that way. Doe was, in part, an American citizen. He had dual citizenship, so that's not the case with these two. I, of course, I think it's clear the government's policy on these fo- on these two folks is to try to get them into court for a uh, prosecution, right. and I and I I haven't heard any suggestion that this would be a Milcoms situation. But,
1: but don't you think it's just as clear that the government has no interest in litigating
0: the applicability of the AUMF to ISIS if it can avoid it? Oh, I, look, I think if this, I think that's certainly the way they ought to be thinking about it. They'd be cr- they'd be crazy mm-hmm. if they want convictions anytime soon. They'd be crazy if they want maximum perceived legitimacy. They'd be crazy if they want any kind of efficacy in the process to choose MilCom's over the regular process. Um, but there are countervailing political pressures. There's, there's a number of officials who love to talk about Guantanamo, and it's possible they might want to go that route. And the interesting question is, will they ha- will they have the internal coherence to understand and listen when they're warned that if you do that, then for the first time you're guaranteeing no more habeas questions you're now guaranteeing there'll be litigation over the subject matter scope of the conflict with ISIS vis-a-vis the UMF. Or at least
1: for the first time a court will likely reach the merits. Absolutely. There ha- I mean there has been prior
0: litigation it's just all ended up without merits. Well, and that's the important point which yeah. is the point I wanted to make that obviously they haven't had they haven't had to cross the Rubicon yet and yep. this would you you will not be able to go all the way through the process without crossing that Rubicon yep. this time and they could lose casting a further legal shadow over the whole thing.
1: So all the this is to say that the Beatles raise an interesting jurisdictional question that hasn't been answered and an important substantive question that hasn't been answered if they're held in military detention long enough for those two questions to be litigated. Right. So and, I, th- I think they're
0: going to quickly end up being brought to the Eastern District of Virginia to face rocket indictment. But here, here's where it gets interesting. So it's obvious from the multiple interviews they've given to reporters from their detention <laughs> facility in Syria, um, you can easily convict them on material support charges and get, you know, some— pretty good sentence, but nothing like what you want for the murders, and that's the reason to want these guys, is to make them account and be accountable for the murders they were involved in, if they were indeed involved in them, Um, and it appears that some of the information we'd like to be able to use for that, we need to get from British authorities. There's been ongoing litigation, thanks to El Sheikh's mother, Uh, the case is El Ghazouli versus Home Secretary, Um, and it's pending in the UK Supreme Court whether the Home Secretary can respond to the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty request that we've made for the passing along of inculpatory or other information. In a context in in which it might implicate the death penalty? Exactly. So, surprise, surprise. The European Uh, Convention of Human Rights strikes again. Now here's where so what they're arguing is in effect that it you can't without unless the Americans are promised to take the death penalty off the table through diplomatic assurances, um, the home secretary is supposed to not be able to provide the information. The home secretary had decided already that nope, that's not applicable here. After all, they're not British citizens anymore, and they're not in British custody, and it's the Islamic State, it's the most horrific murders, et cetera. All these things are sort of mentioned and thrown into the mix. And, and the they're home, bad. And the Home Secretary said, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna insist on the Americans taking the death penalty off the table. The most likely consequence of that many observers pointed out is, shoot, maybe they would end up in military detention in American custody and just kept indefinitely at Guantanamo. So the case was argued to the Supreme Court in the UK this summer. The lower court had favored the Home Secretary. Don't know how it's going to go. You can listen to the audio. I haven't because they have really long oral arguments. It's, it's a different style. Yeah. And it's not clear that the American case can't go forward without this. But it is clear that the reason we hadn't taken these guys previously was, we're waiting to see how that turns out and whether we're going to have all the information we might be able to proceed with, or if instead it might be hard to make the charges. If the Supreme Court in the UK goes against the Home Secretary and they cannot provide the information without us taking the death penalty off the table, I can imagine there's going to be a real, almost Doe v. Mattis level of difficulty about how to proceed from here. True,
1: True uh, but maybe a new sustain- new, two new sustainable members. Possibly so. Um, before I forget, though, the, the, the all the suspension clause talk has, uh, reminds me that tomorrow the Supreme Court may very well grant certain another major suspension clause case. Do tell. Um, we mentioned it briefly before. This is the one about whether um, non-citizen undocumented immigrants who are subject to expedited removal— are protected by the suspension clause when they're physically captured in the United States but have no lawful status, haven't been here
0: long, caught relatively right. close to the border. It's like the legal fiction that you're not really here.
1: Yeah, um, so I've, I've been very critical of the Third Circuit's 2016 decision in Castro. This is the Ninth Circuit case um, with the long Sri Lankan name that if I try to say I'll murder. Um, and so the it's the government cert petition,
0: and I think there's a good bet that tomorrow or Monday we'll get a cert grant. Okay, so that, right, I'm remembering now because we've talked about it on the show. True. This had gone... Uh, against the government at the, at the, the Ninth, Ninth Circuit, Circuit, so you yep. might well give a cert grant. Um, there's a lot just, just, going just on. Just what we did, more, more Supreme Court suspension clauses. Well, just real quick, uh, you've got one coming up. Steve, y'all, Steve's arguing the Supreme Court in in uh, less than a month. What are you doing here talking to us? Um, Stalling. Yes, right. Uh, g- give us, like, the, the C- quick, ca- quick summary. Counting count to five somehow? Yeah, or six is the case, maybe. Um, well, the count in, right? Six. Oh. Anyways, uh, yeah, I see what you over there, see? Yeah. I am listening.
1: Um, Hernandez 2. Hernandez 2. Um, oh. Better than Hernandez 1. <laughs> You're hoping. Uh, well, nah, Hernandez 1. Nah, well, I... Depends on your perspective. Um, You know, the court didn't decide anything about Bivens and Hernandez one. So, cross-border shooting, CBP agent shoots Mexican National, kills Mexican National, while standing on the CBP agent standing in Texas, Mexican National standing in Mexico. Um, Parents of Mexican National sue CBP agent for damages. Um, Case goes to the Supreme Court the first time on whether the shooting, in fact, violated the Constitution. So, did Hernandez have Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights as a Mexican National? standing in Mexico. Um, was Agent Mesa entitled to qualified immunity? Because even if he had rights, Mesa didn't know. Um, and then the Supreme Court, when a grant cert the first time says, and oh, by the way, is there a Bivens cause of action? Um, and then they decide the qualified immunity question. They duck the merits. They duck Bivens. They send it back to the Fifth Circuit in light of their intervening hostile to Bivens ruling in Abbasi. Fifth Circuit goes on bonk on remand, says, yep. Abbasi says no more Bivens, so no more Bivens. And we're
0: back. Wow. Um, you're not the only case being argued that morning, if I recall correctly? Yeah, there's another case about, I don't know, is it is it DACA, is some that, immigration is that, is that it, thing? Is that it, something about that? Yeah, and I'm second,
1: which I have to say, like, you know, come <laughs> on, Supreme Court, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah, yeah. You're getting up to argue, and the entire courtroom is going to empty. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: that's you know. Be a sight. Um... Yeah, a, a jarring one, I think. That's gonna be great. Well, you know, I think a lot of people would be like, "Hey, this that was pretty interesting. Let's see what's happening next." And frankly, your, your case, except for I, every
1: reporter and
0: well, they got go to the go file. They got to go file. But uh, your, if any case could keep them in their seats, that would be a, that would be the one. That's such a law professor thing to say. If any case could keep people in their seats, it's the case about Bivens. No way. Well, if you put it that way, yawn. But <laughs> if you put it in terms of cross-border shooting, yes, um, that's that's kind of interesting. I just I just hope I don't get a question about whether Marbury was rightly really decided. There Time. I really, I have this feeling, I'm just going to predict for you, no inside knowledge, but I predict for you, you're going to get another like crazy, like I can't believe somebody just asked me that kind of question. I doubt it, right? Because I think, because Ex- that, tell, tell them in case they don't know, like what you got asked the last time you argued. My
1: first court. Supreme Court argument, toward the end of the argument, Justice Kennedy's like, so do you think Marbury versus Madison was right? Um, now, in context, in context, it actually like, it actually
0: made sense. As no, it a was, it in wasn't context. a crazy question in context at all. It right. wasn't just some flip. But
1: he thing. was having fun with me, and and because I sort of looked at him like, "Are you serious, Justice Kennedy?" And he looked back at me like. Yeah, I'm serious. A-
0: I'm sure all nine of them listen to the show. So y'all nine. come up with some crazy questions for Steve. No, please don't. Um,
1: I also think that this is not a case. That, um, this I isn't th- a flip case. I think you it was clear that by the time Justice Kennedy asked me that question, I think the result was pretty clear to everybody. Um, and I think this is a closer call. Yeah,
0: well, so, in, 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 a, in a much more
1: somber subject. I'm, c- I'm confident about exactly one thing. I will not get fewer votes this time.
0: <laughs> you only you can only you know, improve. It's from John Roberts's
1: line. John Roberts, when he was in private practice, you know he lost a case nine nothing, um, and the client said, "Why'd you lose nine nothing?" I said, "Because there are only nine justices." <laughs> <laughs> so you know, that's I awesome. think I, you know, I'm, if, the, if it's good enough for the chief, it's good enough for
0: me. That's awesome. I love that.
1: Anyway, yeah, that's coming up. So well, you know. After after this podcast, I gotta go and, and, and prep. Okay, good. Well, we're glad you're here now. Hello. Um
0: Hello and nice to see you. Yes.
1: Speaking of speaking of awkward federal litigation. Should we go to Trumplandia? I mean,
0: you know it's time. Let's take a trip. We're off. We need you know what we need? Maybe some can help us out. We need like theme music for the different recurring segments. We need what is the theme music for Trumplandia segments? Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> or or Twilight Zone. <laughs> Like that. I have something.
1: Yeah, that's good. All right, yeah, suggestions or, 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 on or Twitter, in, please. In, infinite Scream. Is, is there an
0: audio version of that? I don't know want to hear we that. Should
1: ask, we should ask at Infinite Scream if there's an <laughs> audio version of at Infinite Scream.
0: <laughs> that, that might be kind of loud. And Do you guys know at Infinite
1: words? Scream? Have,
0: uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, okay. Well-read audience. Yeah. Well, All right.
1: Yeah. Okay, where did I well, end? Well-read, well-read audience, you read Twitter. Exactly. Hey, in 2019, we'll take uh, it. Fair enough. Better That's than Wikipedia. Certainly
0: certainly the context of this show, we better take it. A true story. Um, where do we begin? How about Giuliani? <laughs> um,
2: <sorry. laughs> how about Giuliani?
0: <laughs> how That could be a great title for this show. How about Giuliani? Huh? Uh, so if we do that, then it has to be, how
1: about Giuliani? Question mark, and it has to be like, how about Giuliani? I don't know how you would do that in words.
0: It, it's so Like an eats, shoots, and leaves kind kinda, of Kind of, yeah. Um, okay, so he says, I'm not testifying because... Th- because attorney-client privilege, he, which is in the Constitution. He kind of does the Al Pacino bit from Scent of a Woman, this whole thing's out of order, and he denounces the whole proceeding. That's
1: not Scent of a Woman! What's it from? That's from um, the one where he does... Um, it, it's not *Scent of a Woman*. What's the
0: movie? The whole system's out of order. That's that's much earlier, Pacino. Yeah, Which that's one? right. Dante
1: Afternoon. Afternoon*.
0: Yeah. Does, doesn't he go on some rant in *Scent of a Woman* when Chris O'Donnell's you know in trouble and he kind of denounces the whole system? It's not the whole system. It's you are. Am I you mixing are, my Pacino? You are
1: mixing your Pacino's. This.
0: Uh, well. Uh, <laughs> you are mixing. That's a good show title. You're mixing your Pacinos. Okay, back to Giuliani. Um, he refuses to testify. He announces an advance uh, period and mentions, among other things, attorney client privilege. Um, you were already denouncing that earlier. So let's talk about. First... I was denouncing the claim that it's in the Constitution. Right. So let's talk about it. Um, is there anything to the idea of. Wait, there actually is news. Oh, my God. Oh, what is it? Rick Perry is out? Yeah. Uh, so, they're, they're missing another cabinet secretary? <laughs> we're running out of cabinet secretaries. We're going to need some more cabinet secretaries. Um, okay. We're, we're running out of FBI guys. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> of. <They're> die hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, die okay. hard. See, I can get some references. <laughs> uh, so, that's been for, let's talk about Rick Perry for a second since he was uh, the Texas governor. Ah, uh, yes, the Trump landia has been overtaken by a Trump landia. Well, it's a piece of <laughs> that's so recursive. Uh, that's been foreshadowed for a little while, and, and when he – there was an attempt to sort of tag him with a little bit of the Ukraine story. And he was like, no. Well, and I think, I think it was very unfair to him because I don't think there's any attempt to show or there was any basis for saying that he was involved in any of the, hey, go investigate the corruption. I think it was the – I'm the energy secretary. I think you should be taking calls and meeting with the Ukrainians. Um, but at the time, a lot of people said, you know, he's kind of flown under the radar. Uh <laughs> I think that uh, he, no doubt, was like, I almost got out before getting tagged with some of this scandal stuff. i, I got
1: to get out. I'm sitting here laughing because it just occurred to me the preposterousness of this entire fucking conversation, right? Beep. Yeah, sorry. You know, We'll, we'll write this one explicit. <laughs> um,
0: but just like every word you said is accurate. <laughs> How is this where we are? If you could have like a Rip Van Winkle who comes back and like, from t- just two thousand fourteen, yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> like here's the someone actually tweeted about this earlier, saying like here's the screenshot of the front of the New York Times today, and is this not like the Onion's prediction of like what it might look like in 2016? I think it's worse. Well, it, it, it is it, well because it's so deadly serious yes, now. It's not true. It was well, not right. Um,
1: so all right. So Rick Perry. All right. So
0: Rick's out, and he got out more or less just in time. Good job. Well, uh, and, Rick Perry. and and and. Now, if he wants to
1: testify—so this is another thing, right? Executive privilege um, from the perspective of people who are no longer
0: in the executive branch. Right. Now, I don't foresee—I mean, he maybe, given his role as energy secretary, maybe has been present for some insights about the Ukraine uh, imbroglio, but probably not a central player. So I doubt he's someone who's— and, and I very much doubt that he'd go in there and do much against the, but the administration. But, but this means I now have to go figure out the order of succession at the Department of Energy, doesn't it? Right. Well, I'm guessing they have a properly confirmed deputy secretary. Why, Why would you
1: think that? Just because yeah. they can't
0: all be empty. Surely. Let's you, ask the Google. Ask the Google. Is there a
1: properly confirmed deputy energy secretary?
0: Well, let's get the audience involved. Somebody, somebody dig that up. I'm, I'm, <laughs> let us know. Just shout it out when you find it out. Who's, do we have a confirmed rather than an acting Oh, deputy? Dan Brolette. Is he ah, confirmed? I actually or? remember looking this up. Okay. Yes, he actually is Senate confirmed. All right, so Acting Secretary Burlett, congratulations. Um, you've, you've won the energy portfolio. No,
1: you've won. You've won Secretary until the president realizes that he wants someone other than you as the
0: Energy Secretary. Could be a long time. I don't know. He's got Could a lot of appointments work. Uh, so, attorney-client privilege. Yes, uh, not in the Constitution. It obviously does exist, notwithstanding not being mentioned in the Constitution True. for litigation privilege purposes, is a congressional investigation in general different, is an impeachment inquiry different? All right, four problems. Right, so, pro- so problem number one, is Rudy Giuliani actually Trump's lawyer?
1: Like before we get to context. Oh yeah, I know, I completely agreed. Like what Are you legal an attorney? advice was any of this about? In a context in which there was an, an understanding of an attorney-client relationship, in a context in which there were not third parties present who were not covered by said attorney-client relationship. And further,
0: where the purpose of the communication was related to the giving of legal advice. For our many non-lawyer listeners, don't is, it, it's right. not, attorney-client privilege is, isn't just any conversation you co- the attorney you co- has if with a If you walk up to me in the supermarket and say, "Hey, Steve," right, and you know I'm a lawyer, and I know, and I know I'm a lawyer.
1: That does not, you know, that conversation is not. Privileged. Well, but
0: make it harder. So, like, you know, so I've retained you to be my counsel, and you do legal work for me. You are, in fact, my attorney for various purposes. Hey, um, which I'm a little. <laughs> I guess I could do that. I, I'd probably. It depends on the it depends on the case. If I needed someone to argue in court, yes, I would. Uh, in in an appellate situation. But if you
1: needed someone who actually knew what they were doing,
0: like, I don't, if, you hire carrot. But, but if but if I then, yes, absolutely would hire your <laughs> wife. Um, but if I, if what I actually needed was for you to go be a, a, a deal maker for a legitimate, let's not even insert the corruption aspect, just, just a legitimate business transaction. I am not your guy. Well, we need to make it, I, I want to zero in on where the legal lines are because if you're negotiating a transaction, that definitely could be the practice of law. If it's, I need you to go conduct basically diplomacy for me right. and do some statecraft for me, that is not the practice right. of law, so, problem, not so legal advice. So
1: problem number one, not at all clear the attorney-client privilege applies to any of this in the first place, right? Problem number two, there is a crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege, oh. right? Um, <laughs> so, so attorney-client privilege- So inconvenient. Uh, it's really inconvenient that, like, actually, no, the attorney is not barred from testifying about criminal or fraudulent activity by his or her client in certain contexts, right? Problem number three, it's supposed to be for judicial proceedings. Not clear it applies to congressional proceedings. Problem number four, Waiver. All this stuff is out there. Like you know, the president just keeps saying, "Yes, this is what we did. Yes, this is who I talked to. This is a you know."
0: There's all this testimony by other people. There's Sondland's testimony this morning. Zero in on the waiver thing. There could be blanket waiver, or there could be rifle shot waiver. I think rifle and, shot. Yeah. Retail. And, and I think a lot of these questions, a lot There's of these questions, what that I went to rifle shot. Yeah. Guilty. Yeah. Um. So yeah. if uh. If the questions are about, all right, there's a there's a meeting we understood you have you had with somebody, and we want to know what was said at that meeting, but the details of what was said hasn't come out. Um, I don't think that there's waiver if the privilege otherwise attaches. Um, Is it clearly established, is anything clearly established about whether attorney-client privilege can be asserted in the face of congressional investigations? My understanding is this comes up frequently, but it never actually produces judicial opinions. Like
1: executive privilege, because these things are usually worked out with accommodation and all this other stuff before you get in the court. But does that suggest that Rudy may end up being right? No, it suggests he may end up winning by default, right, I mean, uh, it's, it's now, so Rudy ends up in the same posture as all these other subpoenas, which is the House may actually have really good arguments that there's no privilege, attorney, client, or otherwise, protecting the specific testimony they're trying to elicit, or protecting the documents they're subpoenaing, um, but until and unless the court say so, right, the House's only enforcement mechanism is to Reopen the old Capitol jail, which no one thinks. Arm the Sergeant at Arms, and well, despite Josh's best efforts, uh, no one except our friend and shortly to be visiting colleague Josh Chaffetz, who just wrote in (laughs) the New York Times about how you know we should we should be thinking about all the House's coercive powers. Now, to Josh's to to be fair to Josh, the Sergeant at Arms, like that's the piece that everyone focused on in the op-ed. His real argument was that like the House could just refuse to fund the entire executive branch. Right, as a sort of you know, until you start cooperating with some of these subpoenas.
0: Right, right. The, the much more plausible scenario, which could occur if the House feels that they won't be blamed for the resulting disruptions right. to the government, they could. Can- you know, shut things down. Or, or or if the if they don't think that like the executive branch is like, yes, defund these agencies. Right. That's the, well the, and that's the dilemma, right? It might be it might be perfectly fine for uh, the more disruptive folks in De, the executive branch. Defund, defund the E the, the E agencies that Rick Perry couldn't remember in the debates. So what if so if you're the House, you gotta think, all right, don't shut down everything because that's gonna have sweeping costs. Yeah. It's like targeted sanctions, a favorite Ooh. topic of the executive branch these days. So find your I never thought about it this way. Congressional, if if Congress is willing to not fund something, doing it on a targeted basis is like an interbranch separation of powers battle version of targeted sanctions. So, wh- what would you defund if you really wanted to squeeze uh, the cojones of the Trump administration? Uh, DHS, um, right? Defund, CB- defund Customs
1: and Immigration Services. Defund. Well, Whoa, no, don't defund CIS. Defund CBP. Defund ICE.
0: Defund. You know enforcement wings, right? So not all, not FEMA, not CISA, not the, the not, not not the, the protective stuff, yeah. but the, but the Defi- define the sort of enforcement arm on the border stuff. That's interesting. Ooh, that's high stakes poker. That's a chips in the middle of the table aren't, move. Aren't we already? in a, I, It all I, feels I mean, like that like every day. But hello? that I think that would be pretty dramatic. All right,
1: but so speaking of the courts, because I think this is the this is where things I think have have started to maybe change a little bit in this conversation, which is now that it's clear that the Trump administration's posture is we will comply with nothing. Um, and that, that's not just the White House. I think Secretary Esper yesterday. Um, there's a confirmed secretary.
2: Yeah, that's we, one. we found one. We found
1: one. Um, which, of course, raises the whole debate. Like, are acting secretaries, are they in the numerator or the denominator for 25th for Amendment 25th purposes? Uh, there's, um, that's never going to happen. People of course to not. let that go. True story. Um, so, the, the you know, now that the, the government's position is we're not going to comply with any impeachment-related subpoenas, it all shifts to the courts. And we yeah. finally got a appellate subpoena-ish
0: ruling friday morning from the dc circuit yep okay so and this really (laughs) generates some attention in part because of the dissent let's talk True. Lay, lay it out for us
1: so this is the mazars case um this is where um the president is basically suing his own you know accountant, Mazars, to try to prevent them from complying with a subpoena issued by the House that Mazars would otherwise has otherwise said they would like to comply with. Right. For the tax returns for, the ta- for, for the tax, tax records and other yeah. other financial documents. Um, we've talked before about the difference between playing offense and playing defense here, and then I also thought the the offensive cases were the weakest mm-hmm. um, because yep. right the you know if there are no justiciability objections if the president's the one trying to block the subpoena. Yep. Right, right. Um, But so the, and also there's the the privilege issues, right, because these are third parties, hard to say anything's covered by executive privilege, there's no accountant privilege, right, under any relevant doctrine in this context. So um, the majority opinion uh, by Judge David Tadel basically held, yes, Congress's subpoena to Mazars was valid on its face because Congress had a legitimate purpose for the subpoena, end of story, full stop. Um, and Judge Naomi Rao, uh, President Trump's nominee to replace now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, wrote to me, Bobby, a, a remarkable dissenting opinion. No, I and and I use the stunning. word. I use the word remarkable in a non-pejorative sense, but maybe also in a pejorative sense. Well,
0: and, and I, you know, I think it's fair to be pejorative about this one. And when she would, whoa, you know, no, I'm going to be with you on this one. I, one of the, the frustrations in. is the whole concept of the show originally was like, well, we disagree about so much from a policy and political perspective, including on the – no, it's not – <laughs> I'm not I'm not moving anywhere. It's the events around me that have moved a little bit. You Sorry, don't Steve understand the power measures.
1: of the dark side.
0: It does feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? Um, and so we find there's all too often when we talk about these rule of law and uh, values and principles topics, there's nothing – we should be disagreeing about and we don't disagree and yet there are others who do now this one when when naomi was was nominated there's a ton of criticism and i think both of us had some nice things to say about um, about her because we both were holding forth the, the prospect that she would be, no doubt, a, a conservative uh, judge, which, which I might like a lot more than you would, but would be a, a, a principled and, and very smart and capable person. I mean, and both, she's all
1: those things. I mean, we both but, know Judge Rowley. She was a law professor at yeah. George Mason for
0: a while. You know, we've yeah. craw- we've interacted with her. We've been on panels with yeah. her. So, the, obviously, there's a but coming. And the but is this dissent. It's cray-cray. This dissent that takes the position that, given the existence of the impeachment mechanism for Certain officials, but it's a lot of people, um, that somehow that is the only mechanism through which Congress can investigate in this particular way. You know, not just that, but it's worse than that.
1: That, that it is only through an impe- a formal impeachment inquiry, and she stresses formal, meaning there right. has to be some initiation. Right. That which, is, which, as we as talked we about said, last week, is just not a Not in the made Constitution, up, not in the statute, not in the up. House rules, whatever. Only in that context can Congress conduct any oversight, not just of the president, but of any federal officer who's subject to impeachment.
0: Yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, so, it is crazy. so much of the history of what has actually happened in the country in terms of investigations, really important uh, events, um, presumably on this theory, uh, were all unconstitutional all along and never should have happened. And that the only mechanism would be. Can, the, can, can I just read yeah. the quote? Uh, I want to try to get this
1: right. Impeachment provides the exclusive method for Congress to investigate accusations of illegal conduct by impeachable officials. Yeah. No, that's like teapot dome, credit mobilier. I mean like Iran-Contra. Iran Contra,
0: this is like this Congress is, peri- every day. You know what this is exactly like? This is like saying that the only way that the military can be used is if there's a formal declaration of war. And anything short of that is unconstitutional. And that's a position some people take, but it cannot be squared with you know, more than a century's worth of history and practice, and I think this is the exact same so thing. This is, so what exasperates me about Judge
1: Rao's dissent is not the bottom line it reaches, right? but is the notion that Judge Rao, who I think would be the first to tell you that she is an avowed originalist, right? that she cares deeply about original public meaning, that you know, and when it comes to these kinds of separation of powers questions, that means she skews a little formalist. Um, right, There is nothing originalist about this analysis. There is nothing formalist about this analysis. Like, the Constitution does not draw a meaningful distinction, textually, structurally, or in any other way between Congress's regulatory function and Congress's oversight function. And there's 150 years of Supreme Court precedent going exactly the other way.
0: There's, this is kind of a piece with something we should throw in just for the fun of it. Uh, John Yoo's uh, statement on, on TV, that uh, introducing yet another rule that oh and by the way, if it's the within a year of the election the founders would never have to You can't you can actually have an use impeachment, the impeachment election year. either. So so Rao plus uh, U equals Within the final year, the People's president can ugh. kill people, and it wouldn't matter because you can't prosecute, you can't investigate, and you can't impeach, and we just let the election decide it. So this is ridiculous. I, I put Judge Rao
1: on a higher plane than than John Yu Just to, you know, just for, for you know, even after Friday, I still feel that way. But but what I worry about with these kinds of arguments is not that anyone who knows anything actually takes them seriously. It's that they move the Overton window. Right, that that you know the now what I think had been soundly discredited as this you know completely implausible theory that the House has no power to do anything compulsory until and unless it stages this formal impeachment vote, which it may yet do anyway. Um, right, that now that actually has the you know it has the imprimatur of a at least widely respected Article Three judge.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a real problem, and so this led you to write an op-ed. I was pissed. So it is a. It was a really interesting op-ed. When I got pissed, I write. That's, you must be pissed all the time. <laughs> These days. Uh, that might be a good show title right there. Um, you might be pissed all the time. <laughs> so um, the op-ed, if I can sum up, Please. and then we'll, we'll need to move on pretty quickly here. True. But You We're basically go anticipate, slow. like, gi- given what you just described, um, the conditions are in place already for questioning all sorts of aspects of the investigative things that are being litigated right now. And we can imagine that we might end up with a split Supreme Court decision rather than a unanimous one that takes a tough stand with Chief Justice Roberts providing the fifth vote, uh, enforcing um, more traditional conceptions of how everything in this space works, and that in light of the division of the court and the patina of legitimacy that comes from having some votes on his side, and given everything else we know, that the president might kind of unearth his inner uh, Andrew Jackson and say that John Roberts has made his ruling, let him enforce it, and so, refuse to comply. That's exactly right. I would just add two things.
1: One, I mean, we already know what the president thinks of the chief justice, uh, right? This, is, this won't be a new phenomenon. Um, but two, I, you know, it won't be this case, right? I mean, so the one awkward feature of this case is if the president – if this goes to the Supreme Court, if it goes quickly and if the president loses – um, he can't defy it, right, because it's right, the, su- the subpoenas is to Mazars. Um, but the, the op-ed sort of posits a scenario where there's a, a, a Watergate-Tapes-like decision. Um, because one of the, you know, the Watergate-Tapes case where the Supreme Court rules 8-0 um, against President Nixon and orders him to turn over the tapes, um, you know, I think it meant a whole lot in context that that opinion was written by Chief Justice Berger, okay. um, right, who Nixon had Nixon's appointed. appointed. Um, that all three of the participating Nixon appointees, you know, there were no separate opinions. Um, and we still know from Bob Woodward, who you mentioned earlier, right? we, we still know that um, Nixon thought about defying it. Yeah. And that one of the sort of arguments that was made for why he just had no wiggle room to defy it was that the court was unanimous. And imagine a scenario where Trump loses five to four in a case where he actually could defy it. Um, and he says, you know, thanks, John Roberts, but
0: no thanks. And then yeah. it's, just, I, you know, that's it would just be catastrophic for a lot of things we care a lot about as lawyers.
1: And, and so I think, you know, this is why you know, there's a lot of a lot of folks talk about sort of judges' uh, sort of ideological and methodological commitments versus, say, their institutional commitments. And I think there are times when everyone needs to put down their ideological
0: commitments and you know assert their institutional yeah. commitments, or else trouble. Yeah. So if if it comes to that, my prediction is we will get more of the institutionally traditional outcome. I know people are going to assume that some of the the Republican appointees are not going to do that, but I I think that we'll see that, and it'll turn out okay, but it's a very scary prospect. I will
1: bet a lot, 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 lot of money that if any of these opinion cases get to a merits decision on the Supreme Court, it will not be unanimous. I
0: I can imagine Thomas defecting, but I think— Alito. I don't know. I don't know about yeah, that. Well, it anyway. depends. Yeah, well, anyway. It I hope we don't have to find out. Well, there should, is that. Should we do a lightning round? Lightning round. Lightning round on DHS. <laughs> okay, so. That was, uh, that was supposed to be lightning. It sounded like oh, a sorry. bomb. But, you know, yes. Okay, so. Light, wait,
1: lightning doesn't make noise. How do how we have a sound effect for lightning? Well, you know, lightning, thunder. They kind
0: of, it's kind of a paired thing. Thunder round. Thunder... Thunder round, it is. There you go. Okay, uh, so Chris Krebs is the, uh, by by <laughs> dint of the uh, Federal Vacancies Reform Act and the current uh, presidential order. Uh, it's actually not the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Well, it's it's in the mix is the it's presidential the, order operating in in place of that but, it un, under turn, the, no, but under the dhs statute it's actually it is actually the the dhs
1: succession order as prescribed in the dhs statute that makes so chris the obama
0: administration had an order yeah. that set, cited the federal vacancies reform yeah. act Did the DHS succession statute get amended subsequent to whatever they
1: both provide authority, right? That it's it's overlapping with the. Okay,
0: well then we're both right. We're both right. All right. Order of succession. The secretary steps down, it's gotta be the deputy secretary, but they've got to be confirmed. Well, kinda while we're doing this, kind of say, all right, so secretary,
1: right? There hasn't been a secretary for 190 days. Yeah. Good. Active uh, deputy secretary. There hasn't been a deputy secretary for 586 days. Turns out you don't need one, it appears. Um, Undersecretary for management. Another oh, three position. That we haven't had one of those for 190 days. Mm, yeah.
0: What about FEMA? Uh, That's next. even longer. Yeah. So, we don't have a deputy secretary. We don't have an undersecretary for management. We don't have a FEMA administrator. I mean, nine of the 11—I
1: mean, if you, if you, if you no, look at 6 USC section 113 and count the sort of the top positions in the department, nine of the 11 are vacant. Um, and one of the two that isn't is commandant of the Coast Guard, right, who—it would actually raise some interesting constitutional problems if he were acting secretary.
0: So the one it fell to... Under the dual office holding statute. You know something about old that chest one. Nuts. Oh, chestnuts, Oh, We haven't said that one in a while. True. All right, so Chris Krebs, who's the head of CISA, basically this is the cybersecurity and infrastructure protective organization for the country. Um, previously had been known as National Protection and Programs, uh, MPPD Directorate. Um, much better name now. Uh Chris is great, as you as you know. Uh, I have a very high opinion of him. Uh, I think this is actually really good news that that's where it's fallen to. I seriously for the going to stay with him. <laughs> um, and and frankly, I don't personally, I don't want to stay with him because I want him to stay focused on cybersecurity and infrastructure protection. How many Scaramucci's will it be? Uh, how, what's the unit of measure on a In I mean, Like, 10 like and a half days? It's it's not much. No, uh, I think it'll be within a week. Now everyone's whispering and saying, "Oh, it's it's, it's going to be the cooch." No! Not the Mooch, but the Cooch. That's too many. I, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going there.
1: Um, so, so I've said this. I think this is like the fourth different episode we've talked about DHS succession
0: specifically. Yeah, I know. It's been an issue, so obviously, because it's, it's obviously tied up in the politics so, of the border. So
1: here's the lightning round version. Ken Cuccinelli cannot become the acting secretary of Homeland Security. Period. Yeah. Full stop. End of sentence. Next topic. Wait, one sentence on why. Oh, well, that probably needs three sentences. Um, so um, there's nothing in the DHS statute that would allow it to be him. If you look at the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, 5 U.S.C. 3345A, there are three buckets. Someone who's the first assistant, he's not, he's not the deputy secretary, he hasn't been confirmed by the Senate. Um, Someone who is uh, confirmed by the Senate to some other job in the executive branch, also not him. So it's the third category that's interesting. It's folks who have been a GS-15 or higher for 90 of the 365 days preceding the vacancy. But here's the catch. The vacancy is not when McAleenan stepped down as acting secretary. The vacancy is Nielsen. And Cuccinelli had been at DHS for zero days yep. when Nielsen resigned as secretary back in April. So there's just no way to. Now, there's a weird sort of twisted way. Um, our Professor Anne Joseph O'Connell, who knows more about vacancies than any rational person should, but she's awesome, um, right? Um, she's writing a book on vacancies. I was like, good timing, Anne. Nice. Um, I will, be, I will be first in line to buy that book. And you guys are like, and last in line first to buy thing. that book. <laughs> um, so the the her, she points out, and this is not false, that you could construct a weird way in which he couldn't be acting secretary, but you could sort of reconfigure the order chart at DHS so that he would be exercising the duties of the secretary on a temporary basis without the title. But then that would raise all kinds of legal questions about whether he had the same authorities. Right, there are a number of things that the sec- you have to be the secretary or the proper acting right. secretary to do it. Meanwhile, kind of back up and say, how about some nominees? No, nah, that's too late. I, I know that Senate I mean, I know the Senate's really hostile to this
0: administration, and so I know that they can't get qualified people through the Senate. But, but you, know. you know, it's no secret that the President has figured out early on it's much better to have people who are dependent on you. And
1: it's also no secret that the Senate, which ought to speaking of institutional commitments, it's also no secret that the Senate ought to
0: actually be bothered by this and isn't. It, I know you're the last person that would think separation of powers instead of separation of parties. I would never say that. No. Ever. Um, another uh, CISA No, So CISA was actually a little bit in the news, in the tech news last week, because they've got a request with Congress for new legislation that would give them a new subpoena power. And this, I think, somewhat predictably set off sort of – an undue, what I consider an overreaction from um, those who are policing against intrusions on privacy. I think this is a net big gain if this becomes uh, an authority they have. So here's the idea. You have a recurring situation that CISA is, is very focused on where you've got somebody who uh, may want to set up a, a botnet so that they can run a DDoS attack or do whatever it is they want to do. Um, and they are certainly able to take advantage of tools like Shodan and just like anyone could, scan for particular vulnerabilities. They know there's a particular vulnerability that they've got an exploit for, and they're ready to, to use it, and they want to they want to see you know, what kind of uptake could we get, where the IoT devices is probably that we could we could go after. That all works fine, and it's useful from the point of view of the attacker. It's sort of useful in theory from the point of view of the defender because the defender also can figure out gosh where are where are all the uh, vulnerable devices but what you can't extract from that if you're SISA or any other defender minded uh, entity is who are the actual owner operators i need to communicate to to tell them that hey here's a patch and you need to adopt this um, and so the idea is that the isps know that And the idea is to empower the Department of Homeland Security to issue a very limited form of administrative subpoena to the ISPs that would basically get the contact information for the customer associated with the vulnerable uh, device or or whatever it is, um, strictly limited to that scenario and that information, a real kind of, again, to use the phrase, rifle shot approach. you could certainly do this in a way if you think that that's desirable but you're worried that it's going to be abused and used secretly for other things that's not my concern but i realize a lot of people feel that way um, then you should be able to hedge it about with enough oversight and accountability and auditing and so forth to satisfy a reasonable degree of caution in that respect Uh, nonetheless there's a lot of people pushing back very hard on this and i think that's too bad because this could be a it could be a, a difference maker on the margins for dealing with insecure IoT devices. And that's, I think, a, a big rock that we need to move. This is where we are, right? Like, uh, you know, another time in our
1: careers, that would have actually been a huge topic. And it would be getting a lot of public attention. And there'd be a lot of buy-in. And
0: people are like, that's super interesting. It's like,
1: but Trump's being yeah, sued. Yeah,
0: there's, there's the, the Trumplandia. And all we can do is squeeze into the thunder round. The thunder round. Um, the thunder
1: round of frivolity. I think it's time for frivolity, though. I think, I think we've been agreeing way too much.
0: Yeah. Okay. We, we, I'm sure we can disagree about. Uh, we're totally gonna disagree. Boston theme movies. Your taste in movies and my taste in movies are not the same. No comment. Uh, Boston theme movies. Yes. Would do you have a favorite? You're gonna here. Say something nice about I, a Boston theme movie. I have some top ones. Okay.
1: So so I you know we'll, we'll trade
0: off. There were there, was, there
1: were some folks on the on the on the Twitterverse. Um, who who were naming some movies that I think were were obvious and not obvious like were obvious sort of easy choices that I don't agree with like The Departed I think The Departed is totally overrated. Um, Good Will Hunting. Yeah, that was number one on my list. Um, what else? Um, so one of my like I used to be in this in the in the sort of I used to be a fan of like super dark romantic like not quite comedies like romantic comedies where they're a little darker. Okay. Um, um, For example. Uh, Next stop Wonderland.
0: Don't know this one. Apparently um,
1: I should. Next Stop Wonderland, Hope Davis, um, who you know, I, I may or may not at one point in my life have been madly in love with. Right? Um, um, fun, like late 90s movie. Next Stop Wonderland, uh, okay. a reference to the Wonderland T-stop.
0: Oh, uh, okay. Interesting. Okay, can I do uh, a bad boston, bad boston movie movie? Bad Boston movie. This is sort of a national security theme one. Have you ever seen this movie Blown Away from 1994? Tommy Lee not. Jones and Jeff Bridges. Has anyone here seen this movie? What a smart crowd. Nobody puts their hand up. Wait, Um, smart crowd and or they weren't alive in 1994.
1: Netflix has surely got it. Um, It's Tommy Lee. How how many of you guys were alive in 1994? Thank God. All right, fine. (laughs) Lots of hands went up. Tommy Lee Jones plays basically. I'm teaching one else this semester, all right? Oh, yeah. None
0: of them were alive in 1994. Wait, really? Golly, Wow. That's that's disturbing just saying. Okay, so Tommy Lee Jones plays an IRA uh, bomb maker okay. who's who's setting off bombs around Boston. Okay. and Jeff Bridges is, is trying to track him down. So and it's like the inverse of Arlington Road. It, it's actually a, I feel like it's a lot like that. Yeah. And and the accents are just atrocious. Well, Boston accents. I mean, it's like well, well, no, it's There's like, some there's some, Russian some Russian Irish accent going on too. It's not good. It's
1: like Russia, It's like Sean Connery's Russian accent in Hunt for October. <laughs> Um, okay, so we sail into history. All right, where are you on Legally Blonde? Since so this was a question I was going to ask for our audience, which is: Is Legally Blonde a Boston movie? It's a Cambridge movie. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, is there anything about, other than the fact that it takes place at Harvard Law
0: School? Is there anything about that movie that is Boston? The Harvard aspect's enough. Uh, we, have a sub-category. <laughs> we have a subcategory that is the Harvard movies. So you got Legally Red Blonde, which chase. I have very mixed feelings about. So I was applying to law school
1: when Legally Blonde came out. Is that your inspiration? And so, no. I So I went to the, I remember going to see, I, I remember seeing Legally Blonde at the Hampshire Mall um, outside of Amherst. Um, With a friend of mine who's also applying to law school, and you know, it's cute and it's fun and ha ha ha, but she went from a one forty three to a one seventy nine on her LSAT. Just like
0: that.
1: It's just like you know, suspend disbelief a little.
0: Like everybody who's been crunching away on your LSAT and working hard to get a good score. I'm just saying, like you know,
1: I was so happy that my score went up like
0: five points. What do that? don't
1: know if you go up 36 if you just use the right scented paper.
0: What <laughs> if the, uh, and don't the color of the paper matters, you. Mm-hmm. Uh, another old uh, Harvard classic, With Honors, a Brendan Fraser special. Has anybody um, seen this? Here
1: at Harvard, we don't end our sentences with prepositions. <laughs> like, oh, I assure you, sometimes we do. Um, no, 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 but you don't remember the rest of the line? No, what does he say? Oh, so Joe Pesci says something. I don't remember exactly how the sentence ends. It's like, you know, um, can you show me where the door's at? Right, Because yeah. the professor's kicking him out of, the, of right. Brendan Fraser's class. Um, and the professor says, here at Harvard, we don't understand this with, with, prop, with, with, prep, with prepositions. By the way, we're about to be explicit again. Um, and so Joe Fish says, I'm sorry, can you show me where the door is at, asshole?
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So go, go you, watch this. You notice a the theme
1: to the Harvard movies.
0: What? There, there's no similar
1: theme to the Yale movies. Uh, what Yale movies? Skulls. Skulls 2. <laughs> I rest my case. Um, <laughs> What else
2: in
0: the Yale movie? <laughs> yeah, I'm stuck on the skulls. Yeah, yeah. Well, the problem the problem is like, Boston does give you a, a great backdrop too, so as opposed to New Haven. Not so much. Yeah. Um, you know,
1: you know the light bulb joke about Yale, right? How many does it take to change a light bulb? Hmm. None. New Haven looks better
0: in the dark. Ouch, man. The Harvard <laughs> one's better. <laughs> that is tough. All right. What about uh, any other movies or, or shows to highlight? So you know, I, I mean, if we're talking about like the the
1: the ooze of like Boston movies. I mean, fever pitch has to be in the conversation, right? Oh, that's good. I just, you know, like the, the Red Sox hysteria circa 2004, which, you know, I lived through in law school. Well, see, yeah, you must have. There were some Red Sox fans. And there were some
0: Yankees fans. And I hated them all. What about, uh, we talked a little bit about maybe talking about best uh, sports figures in the Boston Pantheon for the Red Sox. We did? Well, oh. at least I, I, I was thinking we could, but you can do it on the fly. Best, you know, baseball best, best. sports. Who, who are the great, who are the Ted like kind of, th- okay, obviously? Babe Ruth. Yeah, okay. Just, you got to yeah, share him. Got to share him. I mean, him. You I mean him. yeah, was good even more. All right, all more right if
1: we're not counting on Babe Ruth, yeah. um, Ted Williams, Carl Yastrzemski,
0: um, Tris Speaker slash Smokey Joe Wood. Okay, what about more recent? Like, do you, do you put, uh, do you put Manny, uh, Pedro, does, does No Ma, No Ma? No, not No Ma. Um, Pedro. So Pedro Martinez. Um,
1: I would, you know, I would probably put David Ortiz ahead of Manny Ramirez, but Manny in, the, in his prime. Yeah.
0: What? What about the Rocket,
1: Roger Clemens? What about him? On the list? He's not on any list of mine. <laughs> really? I have Roger Clemens issues. You do? Yeah. Which, as a UT person, causes trouble. But we'll talk about those later. Okay. set uh, them for the Q and A. Oh, interesting. Um, okay, Bill, I got a question. Um, Bill, Bill Russell or Larry Bird?
0: Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't draw a distinction between the two. Um, I'd, put, I'd put Larry Bird over the other greats of, of his but Bill, team. But Bill Russell? I'd put Bill Russell over, you know, Kuzi. Yeah. But these are all, I mean, you know, McHale is also wonderful. And Kuzi you realize is also there's also wonderful. a football team. Um, yeah, you know, for the Patriots, that's a, <laughs> it's pretty easy to pick out the top Patriot. Tom Brady, by any measure, is the top Patriot. There's, there's other great ones, John Hanna. Um, All I can say, I told you the story before, but so the first year Karen and I was dating, well, Karen and I was, Karen, I was
1: grammaring. The first year Karen and I were dating, um, it was the fall of two thousand and seven, which was the Patriots sixteen and zero season, and the Giants, you know, did their Giants thing and somehow snuck into the Super Bowl. And Karen's talking trash two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl about how, you know, ha-ha, we're gonna be nineteen and zero, we're gonna beat the Giants, ha ha ha. And I was like quietly confident. I was like, uh huh, see what happens. Who were the good Giants on that team? Eli. I mean no, it was the defense. Um, yeah, yeah. it was all the defense. It was the it was the defense, it was the defense, it was the defense and and they were um so I'm trying to think, who was, it was Michael Strahan, right? Um, who are the linebackers anyway yeah.
0: alright well this is this is not about New York beating Boston this is about Boston yeah let's be friendly to our location and let's uh, wrap it up and thank everybody for being here for this uh, really enjoyable hour we're going to do more after we break we're going to break and eat and then we're going
1: to have some Q&A which may or may not be at the end of this recording depending upon how it goes <laughs> I bet it will be we'll see alright um, so let's pause it here alright so he's at Bobby Chesney I'm at Steve underscore Vladek we are at NSL Podcast and especially when driving around K bridge be safe out
0: there adios
1: all right so we're we're back on the recording and this is like the the bonus track you, you you listened a few seconds at the
0: end and i want us to put in like a 2 minute gap just with the hiss and oh, see oh it's 2 if minute you gap listen, you know like an old cassette tape why just to reward the hardy people who just Leave it on, hoping maybe there's a bonus track.
1: That's that's creepy. Um, All two of them. So apparently in, in the in the 10 minutes between when we stopped recording and when we are back now and, and having a delicious dinner, thank you again, Harvard National Security Law Society, um, uh, apparently President Trump has come out and endorsed ethnic cleansing.
0: So I, I heard the tape.
1: Or, so, uh, okay,
0: the, to be fair, he said,
1: <laughs> he said he was okay with Turkey, quote, cleaning
0: out, unquote, right. the I, area of northern Syria where the Kurds had been... I will say that I, I don't doubt that he probably, in his heart of hearts, would endorse. And, and not just in his heart of hearts, but probably publicly, if, if he thinks to say it, probably would endorse ethnic cleansing. But I, I don't think his quote was exactly that.
1: I just don't give him the benefit of the doubt anymore for anything.
0: Yeah, Rob, fair but, enough.
1: All right, so we've been talking a lot. It is now your turn, oh, you hundreds of people in the audience. Um, thousands. Thousands of people in the audience um, to ask questions about what we just talked about, about National Law in general, about anything else, AMU, a- a- M- a- no, A-U-A, A-U-A, U- a. ask us anything. A-U-A. U- a. It's an A-U-A U- a session. Um, and, you know, maybe just speak loudly so that there's a chance you'll be picked up by the microphones.
2: Matt. Yeah, just to start off, you spoke a little bit about this before you started taping, Bobby, but I'm curious how you guys both got interested in making this year your field of scholarship and uh, where you wanted to, you know, make your career, particularly given that it really, not a huge field until
1: not all that long ago. So just I'll just repeat this in case it was hard to hear on the on the recording. Some um, the question is, how did we get into this field and you know what, what led us to this field, especially given the, the lack of pervasive, widespread interest in national security law at the when, when we were we we young national right. securitians.
0: So I'll, I'll go first. Um, I can You debate. were first. I was in their, was age before beauty, is that what this uh, is? You know. Yeah. Um, if the shoe fits. I, uh, I came of age in the Cold War and very much wanted uh, to get out of school and do something that would involve uh, defending this country's values and traditions and, and taking part in some way in that great ideological struggle. Uh, and the Soviet Union, Soviet Union went away, in the Cold War you know, came to resolution for the time being when I was in college, and I was not sure what I was going to do next. But I did, I did want to practice law or become a lawyer, and I continued to have this national security sort of orientation and interest. And while I was here, not in this room, but on this campus, uh, Professor Phil Hyman, who's now now retired and in emeritus status, taught a wonderful course on problems in law enforcement, uh, drawing on his own experience at the Justice Department. One of the topics we explored was uh, counterterrorism. And we did really fascinating case studies into terrorism, especially emphasizing the Kelly Lauro hijacking, and, and a variety of issues that, not the issues that so much that came up in the case, or that scenario, but the ones that were lurking in the background. And the takeaway from it all was that the growing problem of terrorism is not going away, but it's probably going to get more and more serious and complicated. Um, that was a That was a widely held view at the time in the mid-90s, and it was quite right. And what Phil was enlightening me about was how many interesting legal issues, how many boundaries between different domains of law and how many settled assumptions or premises were going to be disrupted if if terrorism became more and more strategically significant. And that was all very prescient. Um, I was trying to become after I'd clerked and worked at a big firm, done all that kind of traditional stuff, I always wanted to be a professor and I wanted to find a way to work on these cross-domain issues where it was clear what my topic was terrorism and counterterrorism, but I could, I hoped uh, could become an overtime expert in a variety of different legal frameworks he's implicated and thereby understand how they impact each other and how they uh, might overlap in tricky ways. Um, I couldn't get hired prior to 9-11, I, tr- I was on the market twice with no interest uh, of any real kind and then I was on the market one last time to become a law professor at the time of 9-11 and did get hired at that point. Um and in many ways the, the the general misfortune of the country with respect to the problem with terrorism was what made my career early on when that was the main thing I was focused on. So that's how I ended up doing what I do now.
1: Um my path was not nearly as, as I think consciously well formed. I think um after my MBA dreams came to an end, um in a crashing manner in college, um I studied um, so I was I studied in college basically the, the interaction and the intersection of history and um, collective justice and so I was really interested in questions of how legal systems react to historical crisis whether in the context of truth commissions or war crimes trials or any of those sort of you know interesting universe of issues um, I wrote my thesis as a senior about the war crimes trials after World War One um, which we never talk about and that's interesting. Um, And, you know, in retrospect, I think it's entirely obvious. I mean, I went to law school thinking that maybe I'd go be a prosecutor at the international, at the then nascent (laughs) International Criminal Court. Um, Here we are 19 years later. Um, And 9-11 was my second day of law school. Um, And I think it was, in retrospect, entirely obvious that I would make this sort of transition from the history of how Legal systems react to violent crisis with how our legal system was currently yeah. reacting to violent crisis But it didn't you know, I, it wasn't a plan. It was just sort of this natural thing um, I wasn't sure I wanted to be an academic until I was a 2L and I was TA in my civil procedure class because you know The actual professors at Yale don't necessarily teach civil procedure um,
0: Unlike this place <laughs> <laughs> Hey now <One>
1: Uh, my so my job talk story is that when I gave a job talk at, at Miami, my, my dear friend and former colleague Michael Frumkin, asked said said to me, "Are you sure you went to Yale? Because <laughs> you actually know some law." Um, Michael went to Yale, so you know we 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 we, we, we smell our own. Um, so it, it was it was sort of when I realized that I was both interested in this burgeoning field without a lot of um, that was fertile, that was important. And that was underoccupied because there weren't a lot of people doing it professionally. And when I realized it, and I love teaching, it's like, huh, what job could I <laughs> pursue where I could be paid too much money to do both of those things? With summers off. Um, with something <laughs> off, yes, yeah. uh, off. The problem, the thinks. problem with our job is that the people who are the best at it work, you know, you four hundred, four times, four to ten times harder than we actually have to. We um, love it. But so the so for me it was really just the a confluence of circumstances. Um, and I decided to go on the job market, on the academic job market for my clerkship, which, you know, seemed like a, a <laughs> basically because it was like, you know, what do I have to lose? Um, worked yeah. out well. And there was there was one school dumb enough to hire me and, and you know, fifteen years later, here I am.
0: What a nice place to start off, Miami. Yeah, Miami is great.
1: Yeah. Uh, big mistake on their part, but but it worked out well for me. I doubt my... they see it that way. Yeah.
2: Well. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry I missed most of your, I was at a talk about Turkey by a guy who's written a third book about it, who talked about the ceasefire.
0: This comes up a lot, um, especially being in academics and in having various administrative roles. There are a lot of scope of the field type questions that that arise in different settings. Um, And on one hand, it's certainly true that especially once you take more of a longer lens, strategic perspective on things, there are a great many non-traditional security topics that are terribly important to our security. Um, some of these, for me personally, are of greater interest as potentially something that I would invest knowledge and time into. Other things feel like th- those are so far outside of my ken that they're important, but that's not something I'm going to try to fold into my national security world. You know, so, I mean, frankly, they're, the the poor state of, of public education in this country is easily assimilable to a downstream national security problem, depending on how you define the values you're trying to protect. But that's, that it's its own thing. It doesn't Shouldn't be, I think, analytically uh, piled in there, um, but and, and so and then there's a closer case about the environment and about climate change, mm-hmm. the where going. there are some dimensions that are actually very traditional. That the effect of climate change on uh, migration and refugee flows and and resulting conflict patterns and violence patterns, both within societies and across societies. This is, a, this is a core national security topic. It doesn't matter what the driver is. That whatever the driver is of that sort of instability is a national security topic for sure. And our, the Strauss Center, which sponsors the podcast, has uh, run some very large <coughs> Defense Department uh, data gathering grant-funded activity uh, under that heading. But the one that comes to mind most when I hear what you're saying that, that resonated with me so powerfully during the last election and it just had me really concerned, and I continue to be very concerned about it, and I continue to be very anxious about next year in particular and where things are going to go. Uh, there's a dimension to traditional core national security interests. Let me, let me define that. If if the core, the kind of the hard candy core, everyone can agree. Well, that's part of national security. Is is of is uh, in some sense or fashion about protection against uh, violence uh, beyond the level of crime and so forth. Um, there's a core aspect of that that in our country we've been blessed to not often and not recently have to worry about a lot which is domestic political and endemic domestic political violence that's not just sort of large-scale high-visibility terrorism but simply a a new day in political contestation in our politics where a lot of people a, a number of people begin to feel free to use violence to me were we to tip into that world to have you know, and we've had that in the past, you know, before the Civil War. That'd be a great way to describe what was going on in Missouri and Kansas and so forth. And you, you have moments in our history where we've had elements of this. We don't come right now quite to that edge, but there was a lot of winking and nodding from, from Donald Trump and from other figures that were sort of emboldened in his wake. It's what Steve said about the Overton window shifting. Uh, I'm deeply concerned about the normalization of the winking and nodding, which then kind of makes a little more space for edge activity. And then if and when you've had that normalized for a while, there's some provocation, like an election defeat that's that's close and contested in an environment in which truth is up for grabs. I'm deeply worried about what that would mean. And I think the problems we have external to our borders would pale compared to what we'd suddenly discovered we'd lost inside our borders. I would just add that I think what's
1: true for a lot of us um, is that we tend to write and to sort of, you know, put ourselves out as experts at the intersection and the overlap of multiple fields. Um, And so, you know, your question led me to think about my co-author, Steve Dykus, um, who teaches at Vermont Law School. And Steve um, is a leading national security law scholar, and he's also a leading environmental law scholar. Um, right, Steve's two fields are, are national security law and environmental law and there's obvious synergies right between them. Um, and I think you know the I am I am not that. I am national security law in Fed courts, which you know is a weird it's a pretty good one. Well, less and less by the day. Um, right and, and I think it's just a function of who you have in the room, right, that will oftentimes dictate just how much of the of the um, focus is not just what we might think of as conventional hard power national security law, um, you know, which means we just need more hosts. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. But it's a great question. Thank you.
0: Sir?
2: Um, talking about uh, how legal systems respond to crises, if you imagine somehow this all ends relatively normally, and it's five years from now, what sort of like, responses, amendments, um, rejiggerings of the system, for, legalization of
0: norms do uh, right. we do to respond to this? Great phrase. Legalization of norms is exactly what we need. Uh, it's no great insight from us. This is well established that there are a variety of things that are valuable that, that I think generally used to enjoy widespread consensus were important guardrails, but that were never even thought necessary to reduce to codification to put them into a framework that had an enforcement mechanism that would then be overseen by the courts behind it. Um, In part because some of it's tricky to do, but also just a sense, like, there's some things that are kind of obvious, you don't need to, you can't just just decide that if you're the president, that you're gonna host at your own property in order to make millions and millions and millions of dollars an international diplomatic gathering, and you've not divested a thing. But you can, because that's just a norm that said that before.
1: So I think that uh, It's it's too bad there are no constitutional provisions that speak to that. Right. Well, but
0: but that's one of the insights here is it's all well and good to have um, broader non-statutory provisions. It seems like it'd be the best, right? It's in the Constitution. That's much better than a statute, only on one dimension, and that's repealability or or changeability. If you don't want it repealable or changeable, yeah, then the Constitution's best. But for enforceability, maybe less so. so i think that if we do have a normalization under what i would like to see is sort of a bipartisan approach to this figure out the norms that really matter and find the suite of solutions the ones that can be made more enforceable legally let's do that we're, we're past due on that project um, i think there's a lot of effort you're going to see an avalanche of scholarship and policy writing and proposals everybody's going to have a plan I'm sure a lot of it will be very good. Some of it will be probably overcorrection, and that'll be our new problem. Hopefully. I'd love to have that problem five years from now we're at a conference about how we've over we've overlegalized norms and created too much of a straitjacket. Now how do we loosen it up? But so my I mean my increase
1: my view on this has changed. I think over the course of the last year. I mean I think I started from the you know legalizing norms as the as the way to think about the problem. Um, and the more I think about, the more I think that that's too small, um, and that the real problem is that we have one branch that, not just over the last two and a half years, but that you know over the last many decades, has consistently been aggressive in claiming power, and two branches that haven't been, um, right? And so, you don't
0: think the judiciary. Is.
1: In some contexts, right? So on like on certain social issues, I think the courts have been very aggressive. Yeah. But then I look at, for example, the partisan gerrymandering decision where the court says, no, we're staying out of this. I look at the the Vietnam era cases where the court stays out of you know any real disputes over the war. A court that was not shy about anything else. Hmm. And so, to me, I think the the real sort of deficit of the past couple of years, and I think folks might even say of the past few decades. Um, has been just that too much of our current system tilts power toward the executive branch. Um, Power that I think there are very good arguments the executive branch was not inclined to have, and power that the executive is able to claim by default um, because he or she is the first actor, and because until and unless someone stops them, right, that's the status quo. And so I, I envision a sort of reform scenario that is less focused on codifying particular norms, although I think that would be helpful, and more focused on reasserting the idea that Congress should be playing a much more robust role across the board in all of these conversations, that Congress should be much more aggressive uh, with regard to circumscribing the war power, that Congress should be much more specific in various delegations, that Congress should be sunsetting a lot more of the power it's delegated to the executive branch in a post-Chado world where it can't claw it back after the fact. Um, and I think Congress, in that same vein, should be empowering the courts more overtly and expressly to resolve more of these disputes on the merits. That I think you know, the judicial hesitation that we see in a lot of these separation of powers cases I think would be harder to defend against a backdrop of you know, federal laws that expressly contemplate a more active judicial role. So to me, it's less about the specific norms that we ought to be thinking about codifying and more about the you know, the back to Federalist 47, right? Making the branches all am, you know, have ambitions. Um, and I'm not sure we're there right
0: now. I'm not sure we, I'm not sure I'm on board with a lot of the th- I things you're talking about. But also, if I was, I'm not sure we can actually change it because I think the structural drivers, uh, it, it, it comes back to how we do elections, right? Um, and I think that the things that members of Congress want to maximize, on average, boil down to getting reelected. And then it's a question of why will it help them to take certain steps, why might it hurt them if they take certain steps. And I don't know how we change it to where that incentive structure, to, and, and maybe it's enough to get um, you know, get competition into the districts so that they're not, you know, I would help. basically primary determined. And if you had competitive districts, maybe we'd see sort of a downstream effect. But until we have that change, I don't think there's anything that's gonna change. I,
1: I I'm not saying this is this is oh, I know. I know. this is likely. I'm just saying <laughs> like you know, if
0: I were in charge. Oh, right,
2: right. How about public financing? I,
0: I think I think the districts being drawn the way they are, yeah. or they're not competitive. Yeah. It'll it'll just become a public financing of Primaries that determine sort of the barbell distribution of our. I mean, policies, we live, I mean, we live, being in charge of all of us. We live in Austin, Texas.
1: Austin is you know a city of over a million people. It's the 11th largest city in the United States. Um, the county that is basically Austin um, voted 75-25 in the 2018 senatorial election for Beto O'Rourke. Um, there are six House districts that split that go through Austin. Um, And of those six, one returned a Democrat because they've been, you know, Austin has been gerrymandered to a fair do well so that, you know, this 11th largest city in the United States with a very large blue political base um, has no actual power in the House. And there's just too much of that in both directions. Oh, yeah. No, they're,
0: they're as I said, like, it's the underlying incentive structure for the people who decide. It's not true for all of them. Enough for the the majority of them. It's no matter what they say. Hey, you know where
1: gerrymandering was invented? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> home state
0: yes
2: I was wondering if you could evaluate the
0: at least test balloon events that the White House put out today of you know, the Ukraine scandal right in, in profession, we do, do it all the time the, the
1: president's foreign policy
2: power is broad enough to
1: I was going to say, I, so, so I, I see a tweet, Mulvaney walks back, today's press briefing. I mean, there never mean, was any condition on the flow of the aid related to the matter of the DNC server.
0: But assuming we had up in some form of a, if a, you know, I didn't do it, if I did it would be okay, I did it in. So if we fit it in that realm, how do you evaluate this? It, it seems like there's similarities between um, the, and the defense of firing and the company that's inherently within the president's article two powers, and therefore it can't be. Motivations are irrelevant. Right, and the, the distinguishing situations, or is that an I think it's a it's a great question to ask. The president famously said to be the sole organ of the United States in its foreign affairs, which I think is right, and I think it's adaptive in general. But the reason I'm willing to live with that that Curtis Wright model, that that the sole organ model, is that if what the president's doing as a sole organ is is let's be extreme about it, like arranging hits on his political opponents. That we have mechanisms to, to respond to it. But if, not in election year. You're right. So that's, you know, the, I think we've made clear, like, we think the election year <laughs> caveat is, is ridiculous. Um, that at a minimum, the impeachment power certainly should be available to police that. And that's, that it used to be that what you would say is, well, look, they, you can do certain things, but yeah, of course, if, if you really think it's bad, then you could at least impeach. And that always seemed like kind of an extreme cop out kind of thing, because it's so politically difficult to do, as, as we're seeing right now. Um, but to suggest that it, it's like no, you can't even do that, and it's like no, this is cool. Like, the powers can be used in this way. Um, the founders had a conception of civic virtue uh, that cannot remotely be squared with that kind of thinking. And it's it's one of the things that pains me is seeing people that are supposed to be originalists um, not acting in that way. So now we're
1: really going to fight because um, the sole organ that. The, I disagree that the president is the sole organ in foreign affairs. I also disagree that the Supreme Court actually meant that even in Curtis Wright. But um, leaving that aside, I think this actually proves my point, which is Congress could, I think, claim a lot more power um, in this space. Congress could, you know, make campaign finance laws even clearer. Um, that it's a crime for anybody, including the president, right, to solicit foreign aid in elections without meeting certain very right, like you know, I just I, I think I, I certainly agree with Bobby that impeachment is the tool the Constitution contemplated for this kind of gross misconduct by a sitting president. I just don't know why that means Congress, you know, why Congress is limited to impeachment as opposed to the various other powers
0: I would argue it has to at least have and I some I don't role. disagree with that. I don't, I don't think Congress is powerless to, to set boundaries. Cool.
2: And I- One more. How do you guys... Uh- up with stuff to
0: write about? What is, are there just you read about a case or what is your idea formulation? Write in. Is, we used to do that. Yeah. No, you, we still do a lot of it, but not quite the same way. I, I don't know about you, but I remember being a junior academic and being very worried. I had a good, when I came into academia, I had a, a couple of things I wanted to write about the material support statutes. And I can even remember the moment I was in a cab in San Diego on that huge bridge going out to Catalina Island or whatever the, wherever the, wherever Coronado Island, and, um, I was like, and I was there was yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And There's no bridge. Coronado Island, and I'm on actual bridge, so it <laughs> happened. And NPR <laughs> had a story about um, what was an early material support prosecution, and I just you, you could just see the things to be said about that. Field by association critiques that Dan Cole later on was making the whole deal, um, and I was so worried that like once I was done, like what would I ever have to write about again? Um, obviously, for our particular field. You don't even really have to try. Like, even if we didn't have our own independent ideas and interests, you would just have a palette to choose from. If you're at that moment, like, I got to write an article. I guess I'll do this one that happened today. There's so much. The only hard part is deciding what to focus on. That said, um, for me, there is there is certainly a, a method to it. And my interests generally try to track where disruptive technological change or strategic change is unfolding in a way that disrupts a otherwise seemingly settled legal framework, challenging some of the premises within it. And so over time, that's led me from just being interested in counterterrorism stuff, to being interested in surveillance stuff, to being interested in cybersecurity stuff. Um, and so I follow my interest that way. And, and as Steve said earlier, also trying to go where other people aren't. It's really important to me that I not spend a moment's time writing about stuff that won't matter in the real world to someone who's either a, a practicing lawyer, whether it's civil society or government – Um, on the topics that actually are the grist for the mill of actual national security law practitioners. If I'm not writing about stuff that's relevant for any of them, then I hope I'm doing fiction and fun writing and not writing my professional work.
1: The influence of Immanuel Kant on 18th century Bulgarian rules of evidence. I'm super,
0: I mean, it's all fine that there are academics who write much more sort of abstract stuff. Personally, I'm just utterly uninterested in things that don't have a policy uh, application to them
1: yeah you know I, I, I certainly I mean we certainly have chosen well in, in in you know professionalizing in fields that's not a word but in, in becoming professionals in fields that basically are nonstop topic generators um, I didn't feel that way early in my career right like I, I mean I, I remember that there was a time where I actually kept I, I used to actually a have list? a list yeah, yeah. Of, of potential paper topics because I was sort of worried they would dry up right yeah. and You know, there were probably some overlapping themes to the list, especially about um, the separation of powers in the national security space, um, the role of the courts in particular. Um, You know, I've been interested for a long time in the very neglected um, military justice side of all these conversations, um, which is a shockingly rich area because no one writes in it at all which is why no one can tell that all my writing in it is crap. Um, it's like, someone's writing in it. We don't care how good it is. Um, and, and I just, I, I, you know, I think it, so, so I'm not sure that ours are necessarily examples to follow. I do think um, that it's really important, if not to sort of start writing with an idea of a broader theme, to actually be self-reflective. Um, and so if you are, you know, if you, like, we both blogged a fair amount back when that was cooler. Um, and we had more time and fewer kids. Um, we were and weblogging. We were weblogging. <laughs> what's what's that's is that something? That's what that's what blogs. Yeah. No, right. What, we have to add the web word. I
0: don't think. Yeah. I don't think many people know that.
1: Oh. Okay. Anyway. Um, whatever. Um, but the the and I remember sort of thinking to myself like a lot of that was organic. Like something would happen and I would react to it, but I would actually try every now and then to think about like which were the things that were provoking me and why were they provoking me? Like what were the you know, what were the things I was going to exercise about? And and what I found was it wasn't, like, an obvious answer about, like, my political views. I react to this thing because it's bad for those people and good for these people. It was more these sort of, like, types of arguments in our space that I found especially compelling or offensive. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, just self-reflection is, is, I think, a really crucial part of, of identify what interests you and then what is likely, you know, what, what direction is likely going to lead you for future projects.
0: I'd encourage all of you guys to n- immediately accept the idea that you have something important to say. Yep. If it's something you care about, then yep. you have something important to say about it. And and if you have to pretend to have confidence to put your writing out there, so be it. You'll quickly find out. I've been basically. doing it for 15 years. We're all pretending at all times and everyone is kind of anxious about, I don't know if I should really put this out there. Um, I think student work is sometimes some of the most interesting work because you have the freshest perspectives. And so I hope you're all actually engaged in some writing already. And when you do your writing, I hope you try your best to get it out there. I got someplace to publish my 3L note. Um, I, I, wanted a, I wanted a non-Harvard publication to show that I put something. I was trying to be a professor. I wanted to show I put something in the market and got picked up. These, it was terrible paper. And even that got published. So, And there's a, there's a lot more publication outlets these days. So I hope you're actually trying to do that.
1: It won't be terrible. And that paper wasn't terrible. Mm.
2: Yeah? How do you feel about the Nationals
1: being in the World Series? Oh, I knew someone was going to ask me question. How do I feel about the Nationals being in the World Series? Um, it depends on what happens in the ALCS. Because as long as the Astros win the ALCS, I will heartily enjoy rooting for the Nationals to do what the Nationals do, which is fail. Um, if, the, if the Astros lose to the Yankees, I am just going like, to delete football. ESPN from my phone and pretend that nothing is happening. That's great. Um, but, you know, first World Series game in Washington since 1933.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. It'll be fun
1: to see the Astros winning there. Yeah. Amen. They better win. Yeah.
0: There's, there's a couple of layers, and I think we each have a good piece of it. So I'll say something about the statutory layer um, and the way it connects up with the law of armed conflict. So right at this moment, we've got at least the two detainees who are in military custody. Now there may be some nuance where it's like, well, no, they're on the verge of being indicted, and this is transitional; it all is new. But let's assume that that actually doesn't come through, and we end up in a default position of using law of war detention. Same model we've used in all our major theaters of conflict and then also in Guantanamo Um, the statutory foundation for that is it's it's built upon the uh, AUMF but it's the NDAA for fiscal year 2012 section 1021b 1021 right and and so what it basically does is that statute codified more or less what the Bush and Obama administration and then the courts had all sort of come around to endorsing but it was done in a particular way It's, it's very clear that what it's endorsing is that model of using law of war detention under color of the laws of armed conflict and thus building into the statutory authority the traditional law of armed conflict rule, which is conflict over detention authority over, it doesn't mean you have to like throw the doors open right then, there's a, there's an indeterminate wind down authority that necessarily comes with that, but that's the space we would be in if there were habeas litigation, as there could be, as we've talked about, and if the court determined that, look, notwithstanding the executive branch's assertions, there's just, like, the, there hasn't been a shot fired. There's, there's no longer a there there. Now, I actually think that's probably not a fair description of what the force posture is. Once you look beyond the immediate area we just so embarrassingly vacated, we're still there and still running flights. And there probably is a pace of airstrikes that can support all the claim, and make it more like the Afghanistan example. Um, but there's a threshold question whether the court would be willing to second-guess an executive branch that asserts that we're still in the shadow of the war, a lengthening shadow, you might say. You might. So Steve's got an article about this.
1: That I wrote as a 3L and yeah. published not in the Yale Journal. There you go. See? See, right? I don't know what that. Is. See, I, I also wrote a crappy article as a 3L. That, <laughs> yours is really good. Uh, um, so I, there's this weird problem out there in the jurisprudence about whether the president's factual determinations as to the existence of an armed conflict are just subject to deference or are actually preclusive, right, and are non-justiciable. Um, speaking of articles, national security fact deference, yeah, Bobby Chesney. Um, and I i at least have read the last couple of D.C. Circuit decisions, especially Al-Ali, um, to stand for the proposition that it's more deference than preclusion, right? That, that the courts are generally not going to look too hard behind the president's assertion, but not because they can't, um, right? And, and the, the opinions, I think, are written in a way to at least leave open the possibility that in a case where there really was just no plausible nexus, the courts would be able to say, and we're allowed to say that, and therefore say no detention authority. Um, it's not, you know, the problem is, is that even that is still a very deferential r- review. And I'd be surprised, given the current force posture, um, if that would be the, the sort of the ground on which these cases would go out. Um, but that's today. I mean, you know, if 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 it's six months from now, or ten months from now, when say, or or eighteen months from now, when like the D.C. Circuit gets to this question, um, and these two guys are still in military detention, and we're, we've passed, we're through the jurisdictional looking glass, like we're, we've crossed that hurdle. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it's think a real problem. Um, and it's a much harder argument, I think, for the government to make with a straight face than it was making in the Taliban and, 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 other, and other Afghanistan cases.
0: You know, it's one an interesting case that we both love to geek out on, obviously, the prize cases, landmark Supreme Court decision, which is so interesting because the court was willing to say it is, it is our province and duty, uh, to borrow a phrase, in that case to develop and articulate and state the doctrinal boundary lines between offense and defense and the separation of war powers and it was a very non-deferential like no it's our job just to tell you what the intersection of commander-in-chief and declare war at all means but then having having been judicially assertive in marking the boundary lines of um, the doc- the legal doctrine then turning to the factual determination there's this very executive branch-friendly, highly quotable language about how Lincoln's determination that the fact pattern was such as to as to put the fact pattern into the executive power box. Uh, basically, the court said, like you know, that was determinative. The fact that he said so answers the question. When I teach that class, which is often, I always want to squeeze the prize cases in there, I always ask the students, like, all right, so hypothesize a completely cartoonish situation. I usually just you know make up something as extreme as I can, although I have to get it more and more extreme all the time to make it different from the real world. Um, we're, actually, li- we're living in Veep. Yeah, there you go. It's beyond Veep. That's and beyond and so the question is, you know, do, does everybody think that today's court, whatever, or the court of some indeterminate number of years from now we are not sure who's on it, so like the median potential future court, um, are they going to feel that the court has bound them? It, are they going to think that the precedent actually binds them if it's a farcical enough claim? And I think the answer to that is basically no. If the forced posture of the court in politics suggests they might otherwise want to second-guess it and think that they could get away with it without undue institutional damage. So I think that basically there's not any real preclusion, even if the price cases were read for all it's worth. I think it'll be determined by what the assessment of the majority is, what they think, how far they can push back without it being dangerous. I
1: agree.
0: You guys have... Really great to stick around. We can uh, wrap up the recording, but we'll linger a minute.
1: We we need it. We need an episode title.
0: Oh yeah, vote on, vote on the episode title. That's where I am too. Yeah, <laughs> we got figured out. So we can upload it tonight.
2: Live from Austin. Dot dot dot.
0: Hall. Yeah, that's good. That's not bad. That's, that's good. Bad. I like it. Done. All right. Well, in that case, thank you guys. <laughs> thank uh,
1: we'll stick around. But uh, uh, if you're if you're still listening. Um, we are very impressed. I, um, tweet or email Bobby and say you made it all the way to the Wait, one, like, one
0: hour and 42 minute mark. No, no we need like a, just one word for them to just tweet the one word. What is it? Code word. Uh, mm-hmm. Code word. Emoluments. 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 Code word emoluments. <laughs> just, just tweet emoluments. All right.
1: On that, we are out. Stay safe <laughs> out there. Bye.